Yes, good people, it's Francis here from Let's Do Humans podcast. This is just a quick announcement, just to encourage everybody here that's listening to our podcast right now, just to ensure that you subscribe and you follow us on all of the various platforms out there that produce podcasts, that's subscribing to us on YouTube, following us on iTunes and Spotify. I mean, follow us, make sure that you share our content and continue your support, that'll be greatly appreciated. That's Let's Do Humans, L-E-T-S-D-O-H-U-M-A-N-S, Let's Do Humans, one word. Appreciate all of your support. Stay blessed, good people. Most definitely. Um, just before coming on to this interview, I was watching your most um, recent video, which was a, the lovely lecture on massacre and killings and how we made us. It, it was sort of like a great annotation of like evolution and natural selection. Um, was that brought about by the whole COVID situation that we were kind of like slumped into now? Well, not actually. Um, it, I'd been thinking of, I think, it, you know, vaguely technical or, or scientific sort of things, uh, you know, immediate turn off for most people. But um, what spurred me on this one was uh, that <clears throat> I was a, a fill-in dad at a parent-teacher night for my grandson. Yeah. And um, I, I asked the teacher, it was kind of a trick question, because I usually ask it, oh, primary school kids, how do you teach them evolution? You know, it can't be easy, can it? You know, how do you, what, how do you teach them the mechanism? And she was kind of a bit nervous there. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> And she started mumbling on about um, creatures needing to be different. I thought, well, that's great. Yeah, I can imagine it. If people think that the giraffe, you know, sitting around uh, on the savannah thinks, damn, yeah. if only I had a longer neck, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, the next kid I have is going to have a long neck. Look at it, yeah. But she really had no idea because people are so polite. And they don't want to say that, all this lot got wiped out and there was yeah. a slaughter and the only ones left alive, you know, were either lucky or freaks, you know. Mm. Um, so uh, what they tend to say is uh, something outcompeted the other thing, which doesn't really help. Um, whereas uh, I think people have kind of missed the fundamental point that um, uh, there is no changing like this sort of morphing that they, you know, we imagine from watching videos where something slowly changes and, and, and yeah. it's simply that everybody else in the room was dead yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and and it kept going like that and it's very hard to grapple time because we oh what do you suppose we can comprehend uh, as you get older I suppose you get a grasp of a year or two but you know we don't you think of yourself going back 15 years even you've got the picture you've got the self but it's yeah. not and as for hundreds and thousands and forbid millions of years, mm. it, it, it's just um, uh, incomprehensible. You know? It really is, yeah. Um, yeah. A great person to speak to about that, who I've had on my podcast as well, is um, William Van Hippel. I'm not sure if you've heard of William Van Hippel. He's a very renowned um, evolutionary biologist. And we had this great conversation. We're talking about like um, the evolution of man and weapons and how we came about to discovering weapons. Okay. And how the throwing motion was the start of absolutely everything that we now know as weapons. 
and um, mm. he just gives a he just gives a great breakdown of how that went about happening and 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 also as you discussed in your um, video in regards to like death and and blood shed and we're, we're here as a, as a result of millions of deaths <laughs> like yeah. Uh, yeah. and that's how evolution that's how evolution is whether it be natural deaths or whether it be through wars through battle of resources food or simple things as water like one of your ancestors could have got knocked over the head in the world just because someone else's ancestors wanted to get to the water before them or wanted to maintain oh, it can be yeah. very you know unusual things that often you know um i had uh actually it was a prison years ago a kind of open prison but it was a mad one it was an old country house and and two of the officers there were, uh, you know, uh, fanatical uh, creationist uh, fundamentalist Christians, and just weren't buying into uh, the idea of uh, the changes the way they happen. Um, but I kind of got them into the idea by suggesting, well, imagine, um, you know, there's a, a, a predator running around eating everybody. Now, the only ones who managed to survive were the, the ones who could get into the unusual caves in that area, which were only about four feet deep. So the creature couldn't get in there. So everybody taller than that is getting munched up. Yeah. <laughs> so they're either wiped out completely or the, you know, oddball uh, dwarfs that are around, they're the only ones who get to breed. So, you know, given not too much time, the only people around are the short people. Yeah. And they, it's kind of like, it was a bit of a light bulb for them. They, they realized, yeah, that, that, that could happen. And, um, of course, with, you know, great complexity, it just seems too astonishing. But, you know, as a data analyst, you'll know that um, we have a kind of uh, a human bias on looking at patterns for things. Yeah. compared to um, a, a, an unbiased look on things yeah. uh, in which we rely on the numbers to tell us. Mm -hmm. But um, I think I even did something once where, just as a kind of sidebar about um, people winning lottery uh, numbers and how they were very much convinced that one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, yourselves <laughs> are unlikely to come up. You know, yeah. I had a ball there, and I'm painting it with things. I said, look, those balls, when they go in, are all the same, actually. Mm. You wouldn't think there was anything between any of them if they had nothing painted on them. Mm. So why should there be something when we paint a symbol on it? That yeah. symbol, one or two, or three, only means something to us. In fact, there was a lottery win, I think, about three weeks ago in South Africa's big um, national yeah. lottery. And that wasn't one, two, three, four. It was... But it was five, six, seven, eight, nine, and oh, the wow. extra ball was a ten. It was a ten, now, yeah. Most people complained that this was proof that it was rigged, mm. Be and not only that, twenty people won because instead of the usual one, because the um, I suppose there's people who fill in their own numbers. Enough of them, you know, microscopically mm. few, but enough of them felt I'll take an extra chance on consecutive numbers. You never know. Yeah. Um, but in a way, that's more proof to me that it's not rigged than it being rigged. If it was mm. being rigged, you'd, you'd try and pick numbers that people felt were natural and all of that. Yeah, but so like the natural progression of numbers. Yeah, it, It's very hard to... Um, I mean, how many people do you feel who are convinced that uh, events that happen to them, uh, especially bad ones, are part of some 
plan of destiny. Oh yeah, we we always seem to make that sort of um, um, like association or link to anything bad that happens to us. It's like it was meant to be. So, for instance, going back to the incident I said happened to me in regards to the shooting. After that, I kind of straightened out my life a bit, and so in order to make sense of what happened, I'm like, okay that was meant to happen in order for me to become a changed right. person and not get caught up in a particular lifestyle. And that happened very early on in my life. I was 17 when it happened. So yeah, it was almost like, as well. yeah. 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 So it was almost like that was perfect timing. So you, you always make the association and, and, and kind of create the, the narrative around things that do happen to us as not just by chance, but by some divine purpose. Indeed. I thought, um, I just because we were talking about that, the, the lottery win this week's was won by one person in the UK, 40 million. Good for mm. him. But um, I'm, even though I try to be rational, if, um, if I'd won it, it'd be very hard to shake off the feeling mm. um, that there was a, a, a not a div divine hand at play, but some yeah. kind of, you know, uh, maybe yeah. maybe I'm living a simulation, and this is part of the, part of the act. <laughs> it was your turn. Yeah, uh, I mean, our, humans, our our desire to create meaning around stuff is really, really interest, interesting and intriguing. Because the the more I read into like psychology, and I, in particularly, I've been reading a lot of Jordan Peterson's work, and the, right. the 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 pursuit for meaning is one of those things that kind of draw us to the divine. It's like we need to find that that thing that that kind of makes sense for everything else that's happening along in our lives. So it, it must been, be, mustn't it? I mean, you think of uh, almost any society or culture, they will. Uh, in the absence of any understanding uh, of how something's come to be, um, they'll find something and hook it onto um, a supernatural uh, yeah. one. Uh, and, and I guess there's some um, comfort in that. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit like um, conspiracy theories. Yeah. Uh, they're always fairly uh, dark and evil, fine, and the mm -hmm. usual. Uh, culprits are up there, Bill Gates and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, I think it's uh, something that people take comfort in. Mm. The idea that instead of uh, a world with Donald Trump-like leaders stumbling around, you know, mm -hmm. who are uh, tweeting off their commands, um, <laughs> there's actually somebody who knows what the hell he's doing. <laughs> and yeah. evil or not, uh, at least it's somebody who's got a plan as yeah. opposed to, um, you know, randomness. Yeah. Uh, that certainly must be. I, I, I must say, um, there have been times in my life when I've felt that myself. Should I introduce myself a little? Yes, please do, yeah. Okay. Please do. I know we're just sort of like... Oh, we're just, uh, we're just yeah. a little uh, warm-up here. A little warm-up, uh, yeah. Just uh, get to understand. You never know. There's always the danger one of us might say something useful and then we've got it in the wrong spot. So <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, Francis, but, good to meet you. Uh, David nice to meet you, Millen. David. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, actually. First of all, I want to, before you go ahead and introduce us, mm -hmm. I want to thank you for taking um, the invitation on because I'm sure you're an extremely busy individual at the moment. And, um, yeah, I've been following your story for a while and it's super intriguing. So I was just blown away way by the fact that you accepted my invitation so first of all thank you for coming onto the podcast and sharing no, your it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here really um yeah, you can imagine normally sunday is uh, a day to uh, worship the lord and all his works <laughs> but um my relations with the almighty have been a bit uh, ragged over the years we're gonna so, get to that <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't seem to have that 
But indeed, um, for those who don't know me, I, um, I was, a, I guess, a career smuggler for over 40 years. Began um, back in the hippie area in the 70s, um, in which we all believed that uh, the world was wrong, we were right very common belief amongst uh, 17, 18 year olds yeah. and uh, that all drugs should be uh, legal and turn everybody on. And since they weren't, and there was a bit of money to be made, <laughs> uh, let's go get some. So uh, was it a good career? I don't know. Uh, it was interesting, but I had uh, several big arrests. I was smuggling, well, I began smuggling all sorts of things. Uh, uh, gold into India, um, um, even uh, video recording heads, you know, wherever there was a difference in some kind of uh, margin between borders, uh, then tie sticks, uh, opium, heroin, cocaine. I was um, pretty open-minded about that. And, you know, of course, people think, oh, well, you can't get any worse than heroin. Well, uh, of course, along the way, I picked up a couple of... Uh, accidental drug habits uh, being so close to it and having it around me all the time just killing time in hotel rooms somewhere in Asia waiting for the man to turn up I'll just have a little line of this and a line of that and then you get back home and uh, must have picked up a flu somewhere my legs are kicking <laughs> no, I didn't want a whiskey spat it out, couldn't eat a sandwich I know, I'll have a bit of that shit that I brought back oh, wait a minute David what have you got but um, I suppose uh, the um, the advantage of, of doing it in a <clears throat> from source country backwards that um, I wasn't too much on the front line, um, but also had quite a bit of experience, especially in Australia, um, going straight from source countries down uh, onto. Um, street level mm. um have you lost me oh no i'm still here no you're still here yeah um but that was also a bit of an education as well um but i was a bit of a um kind of soft-hearted dealer in a way i'd find myself at three o'clock in the morning driving out to see somebody who was sick mm. and i also kind of learned that you can't be um you won't last long if you're some kind of ruthless maniac. You know, a lot of kids of a certain generation thought, well, I'll go into a narcotics business. And the first thing they'd do is to go to a hardware store and buy a whole bunch chainsaw of and a yeah. splash guard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, I, got, I got arrested in a massive trial that uh, took place in Australia. Ran for six months, 119 witnesses. Um, wow. It was a conspiracy because there were no drugs found. But um, it, there was nobody came forward to say, yes, he sold me drugs. And mm. <clears throat> I guess that, in a sense, was you know, um, better to have uh, in, in a kind of ruthless business uh, to uh, have some sort of ethics to it. But looking back on it, of course, I think I spent probably um, one way or another over 20 years in prisons. Uh, not and across, only, across various continents as well, right? Yes. Yeah. And 
uh, only half of that convicted, the rest wait in trial, mm. uh, and twice um, facing a death penalty, uh, including in Bangkok in Thailand. And okay, it's rare that they execute a, a Westerner. Um, but um, I think they were going to do it in my case because yeah. um, unusually the Australian and uh, the British governments were uh, supplying material to the Thais to help me get convicted. Mm. Did they uh, want you to get convicted in Thailand? Did they prefer that, do you reckon? Yes, they... they because of the severity mm, of the um, sentence. Well, I think it was the... Um, in, when was that? 93, uh, mm. 94, 95. Um, they thought it was about time that, um, you know, a bit of... Uh, um, one of a somebody who looked like a regular sort of citizen mm. um, was executed just to say you know mm. it can happen. It was by machine gun in those days. Yeah. Um, they used to give you a bunch of flowers and um, <laughs> you got to say some prayers and uh, a bit of string was tied to the, the machine gun, which was attached to a bench with oh. three bits of string and three officers pulling at it so that. Um, it spared them the idea that any particular one of them had provided the Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, so avoids them of the guilt. Mm. Yeah. Um, I don't, I guess, uh, perhaps they were trying to work it into the, the Buddhists' uh, belief system. I'm not too sure whether that <laughs> would fit too well. Yeah. But, um, so, uh, facing that likelihood, um, I escaped from there in, in what was... Uh, quite difficult, but I also had a bit of luck. Mm -hmm. um, then went on and found myself um, a few years later in a similar situation in uh, Karachi in Pakistan. Uh. Uh, death wouldn't have been very likely in that, but um, I was fairly badly mistreated. I was tortured there, um, which again doesn't happen to um, uh, Europeans too often. But, um, and I'd started to think that um, I just can't, you know, win at this thing. Yeah. Um, not necessarily because I wasn't willing to put the work and to try and take the precautions, but I mean, for one of them, that Thailand thing, I took elaborate stuff. Uh, Francis, I had two passports and um, they were very carefully put together so that mm -hmm. nobody knew about them. And despite all of that, um, a bunch of unlikely circumstances came about. In this case, it was the American DEA testing some equipment in. in yeah. Um, I found myself arrested, and I almost felt like uh, you know, fate was working against me. Mm. So, I guess that was about as dark as the despair of a god, mm. and I was suicidal for quite a while. I mean, I wanted to. I can escape. imagine. Yeah. I mostly wanted to escape to get out, go to the Dusitani Hotel, because I knew how to get to the roof there and jump off it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Um, th th there's something that intrigues me about you, because um, I've watched um, quite a few of your videos. I've also just recently watched the documentary, or the movie slash documentary, which is absolutely amazing, uh, made in Australia. And um, one thing I realized about you, even speaking to you now, is that your level of IQ, your your 
you're well-spoken, you're, you see, you're a super intelligent individual. Um, someone like you, were you in the game for, for the money or were you in it because you knew how to play the system and you enjoy the actual ride of it? Because there's something, in, the reason why I'm asking, because I've, I've spoken to several individuals who've been, in, who've been involved in the trafficking industry or been gangsters and so forth, and those individuals tend to be very high IQ individuals. And to them, the thrill comes from being able to beat a system which almost seems unbeatable. So it's not necessarily the money. They never really talk about the money. It's never the case of, oh, I was making millions a week or millions a month. It's always, I managed to get away. I knew they were after me. I played this game on them and I played that. And it was quite similar to your story. So what was it for you? What was the driving factor? I, I think um, I think there's a, very much a great part of that uh, is, is uh, similar for me. Mm. Um, a bunch of us were... Uh, I met some crooks... Um, by chance, and they were um, mostly safe crackers and, and robbers, yeah. but uh, they were going to the drug business and they were talking about would it be possible to import? Now, um, the more they said, no, it's too dangerous or it can't be done or such and mm. such, had a bad experience. Uh, and uh, I took a couple of experimental trips and then laid out mm. what the difficulties were. The more people said this can't be done mm. yeah i was same as the guys you've been talking to i i thought no 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 that's not right it can be yeah um now what is that just arrogance or um you know the sort of thinking yourself of the center of the universe or what mm. um not entirely um mm. look i think many uh, um Many of my readers and the people who uh, watch my channel on YouTube, um, they are kind of like, I guess, um, armchair smugglers in the sense that they, it's something that I think many people uh, have thought about it. And, you know, when, when I was um, recruiting couriers, uh, uh, so many of them and, and the best of them uh, were not uh, crooks by nature or not involved in crime, mm. the, the best of them were um, just kind of regular citizens, if there is such a thing as a regular citizen. <laughs> Law-abiding uh, citizens, yeah, initially. Yeah. Uh, that they'd been at airports, and, mm. and you know, I think you could ask, um, if at an airport, when you're surrounded by that, you know, system of security, mm. um, it would tell, people ask themselves, I don't know, uh, could I get through? Or they watch somebody hit, and, you know. Um, how many times do uh, you think, Francis, if, if, when you've seen something unfortunate happen to somebody, they've been pounced on by police or something mm -hmm. like that? Of course we ask ourselves, what would I have done? Yeah. Would there be a way to avoid that situation? So, yeah. um, and even in movies and books, we kind of, doesn't matter whether the person's the hero of the story or the bad guy. Uh, if the situation seems sort of hopeless or difficult, we want to see whether they'll get out. Yeah. You think of everybody just about knows the um, Battle of Stalingrad. Germans have gone in at the wrong time of year and they fought over a city they should have bypassed. And so many people are often asking on those question forums what could have they have done you know mm. to get out of it um now it doesn't matter that uh they were on the other side to us 
in the same way that I don't think it matters that the, the villain's on the other side, you do ask yourself, can you get out of it? And I think um, I took the, my kind of pleasure in it, I guess, was the research, the planning, and then finding a solution. Now, um, once the thing had been tested and worked, it was a kind of a strange downer. Like, um, well, if I'd... I well, once you completed a mission, you mean, yeah. you, felt, you felt down. Well, I remember one where I noticed that at, um, at Sydney Airport, um, there was a number of flights that were domestic from city to city within Australia and then flew on to foreign destinations. Mm. Now, when they were within the country, the passengers got a kind of a domestic pass when they, if they were getting off again, say they went Melbourne, Sydney. Um, and if they wanted to, if they had a reason to, they could even take their bags off before flying on to the next foreign place. Mm. And they'd show this little slip and they'd, oh, you, you've just come from a national location, and out you go. So I thought, well, surely there'd be a way of making it look like that's what you were. Mm. And there was. It was a matter of somebody, um, if I imagine we transpose it, we say uh, that there's uh, Paris-London flights all the time, every day. Then yeah. Nobody's likely to get hit on one of those. But if... Uh, your, uh, if Francis's courier, if I can give you a few, <laughs> um, takes off at uh, Bangkok and is ticketed through to Paris and then on to London, if somebody boards the same flight at Paris and picks uh, up his bag, his bag, yeah, through, and then goes out and they say, "Well, where have you been?" Mm -hmm. uh, now there's uh, some technicalities, but this just makes it interesting. Yeah. The 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 bag that he picks up will have no green stripe on it. The green stripe you've probably noticed mm -hmm. on uh, bags means you've come from Europe. Yeah. So um, I gave people from time to time um, bags which had under the handle uh, the the, uh, the baggage check, which they could once they picked up the bag they could remove the one that had been in use from Bangkok. Yeah. Off and pull a little strip, and it would so from a country of no threat. Yeah, uh, yeah, to to appear to have come from somewhere that was uh, not. Yeah. Um, now, here's the point. When uh, I usually, oh, just about always did the the test myself uh, mm. with something new, and I got back and I had my few kilos in there, mm. um, and it had come from. Um, uh, Carly and Colombia in this case. Now, you'd think I'd be happy or relieved or something, but mm. as soon as I walked out of that door, I'd say to myself, right, it worked. I was correct. Mm. And then, yeah, so what? You know, uh, uh, <laughs> On to the next challenge. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Do you feel uh, deflated that it was too easy at the time? Uh, yeah, I know, but I, I was also um, a little insulated in as much as I'd picked up some pretty good um, mid-level contact so that mm. I would charge about, um, well, let's just say, uh, I don't know, a kilo of Coke today is worth uh, 38,000 or something mm. like that. Apparently, it's gone up a bit since uh, C19 yeah. <laughs> uh, quality right through the floor. 
um, but um, if you're willing to uh, um, sell it to a wholesaler for just 30, yeah, <laughs> you'll be uh, given good treatment and protected. Yeah. Because whoever takes it from you at that price doesn't want anything to happen to you. Mm. Uh, in fact, you, you find yourself um, that, that they'll be very careful with um, you know, people get greedy and they they forget to value themselves highly enough in in a mercenary world. Um, <clears throat> whereas even you can imagine if um, some desperado criminal who's likely to do anything if the opportunity is there. If uh, if you're charging just regular rates or high rates, uh, he's got a particular reason to value you above everybody else. Yeah. Um, so that if he's looking for somebody to target and thinks, oh, I know that guy would have built up a bit of money, I'm going to engineer a situation where, mm. you know, get a honey trap and find out where he keeps his money or kidnap yeah. his mum or God knows what. If you're worth quite a lot um, because you give the, the best deal, you don't have any of that problem. It's very unlikely. So I could just, um, because I wasn't you know, super obsessed about uh, the money, mm. I could um, afford to um, pay my uh, associates and helpers very well. Yeah. And also there'd be enough money around to, um, if they got into trouble. I always offered that option that, um, mm. in the, I think this only happened twice, but um, in those occasions where somebody does end up being arrested, there was um, a great courier. Uh, he was uh, known as the lollipop man because he <laughs> looked like one of those guys that holds the... Uh, we'll help the kids cross the road. Sign, yeah. On the, yeah. On the he he just had that face. He couldn't get arrested, really. Mm. Uh, but he walked in at um, Balkia Airport on the day that the uh, Federales had a big mm. army operation there, and they were just pulling everybody to bits. Yeah. And he had a couple of kilos in shoes and ended up arrested. But the good thing about um, operating around that level, you can go straight in the next mm. day and say, look, Here's your options. We can um, you can hang around a bit. You will be treated well. We put him in. Um, managed to get him transferred to the hospital section, outside hospital. So he was not even in the prison uh, so, at all, yeah. um, because Barranquilla uh, prison, you can imagine, is a bit uh, not for the faint-hearted. It's kind of run by the guys in there. They wouldn't be in there if they were big enough, and so they're not really. And uh, they're very. Uh, they've got factions and gangs and all, all the other yeah. kind of entertainments that people have in those places. So he was um, uh, got the lollipop man back in uh, within three weeks. His biggest fear, oddly enough, was once he was out, um, because he'd overstayed the visa. This had taken a few weeks. He was more fearful of crossing the border on an expired visa um, than he was ever running around with kilos of coke. Of cocaine. <laughs> we had to uh, put him on a, um, a boat that uh, mm. was going over to Panama. He said it was a pretty rough crossing, and, and the, most of the other passengers were sort of paying their way by taking uh, 
eight or ten ounces of Charlie over with them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but um, that that is some, you know, that that is always pleasing too that you you don't lose anybody mm. um, in that way because um, I I found too that um, people are uh, kind of tested to their limits when they're out of their environment entirely. I mean, yeah. most people probably think, oh, I could. I've seen a few programs about uh, prisons. Uh, mm. It'd be annoying, but I guess I could cope with being locked up in a UK prison. Mm. But if, uh, let's just say we had to face a prison in Lagos, mm. oh, I don't think that... It'd be uh, very different, yeah, most <laughs> definitely. Um, when I was watching um, Made in Australia, I, I, it, it, to me it felt like a mix between sort of like Narcos and Catch Me If You Can. <laughs> I'm not sure if you've seen both of those films. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, re the reason why I made the reference to Catch Me If You Can is because you had this um, ingenious way of evading the police. And um, there was one story in particular, and I wanted to know if it was as accurate on the show as it was in real life. And that was the transaction at the maternity ward. Can you explain that story a bit for me? Because I, well, I found it very intriguing was, and ingenious. Um, I was in touch with the, uh, Chris uh, Merkser, who, who wrote the screenplay for that. Mm. I didn't get anything about it. You know, people are under the illusion that they have some control over their own life stories. You know, that mm. Somebody could write your biography, it wouldn't be official, nothing you could do about it much. Mm. Um, but I thought better to be a little involved than not. And it seemed because this had happened at the at the Mercy Hospital in Melbourne, um, it, it seemed probably they should use that. Um, there were a few changes made. This was the situation. I'd kind of retired for uh, at uh, 24, which is a good age for retirement, I think. <laughs> um, but my uh, friend and business partner, Michael, had uh, kept going, and he was being all mysterious about uh, the source of some who gave him this Thai contact. Now, little Hassan used to travel around the world um, with these cutlery boxes, uh, the top layers of which were packed with compressed heroin. Now, um, I thought, I did say to Michael, I said, you know what, you bought this contact off somebody, somebody didn't want him anymore, delivers to the door and sells for a quarter of the regular wholesale price. And so somebody didn't want to do the great favor of giving you this guy, you know, but he didn't give him to me, I had to pay 50,000. Yes, nonetheless, the guy's worth a million. Mm. But anyway, um, I'd been under surveillance for a couple of years at the time, and so had Michael. The surveillance didn't really stop, even though I stopped doing things. But Michael came to me with this problem as follows. The uh, Thai businessman courier had uh, arrived in the country. And they'd given him a bit of a check, let the cutlery boxes through. They uh, were suspicious, but of course they very much wanted to know where this stuff was going. Uh, and they weren't absolutely sure it was in there. They let him go. He checked into a big hotel in town. Um, and Michael came to me and said, listen, Hassan's got kilos in these cutlery boxes. He's in the hotel with it now. Um, you know, there's police everywhere. What should I do? Walk away from it or not? 
well, this was the problem. Say you've got a, a, a task force operation following you for a couple of years, and they haven't produced any results. Are they going to go to their boss and say, well, you know, we haven't really got anything solid, we have to let it go? Or are they going to be very determined? And, and they were, especially since, unbeknownst to us, they'd uh, crept into his hotel room, uh, drilled the boxes, knew the stuff was in there. Mm. And um, I said to Michael, you can walk away from it. They will arrest him with the stuff and then arrest you and mm. use in all of your communications with him as evidence um, in a conspiracy case. But I also realized from my, my own interest that they wouldn't stop at that. If I'd been followed around for two years, I'd be yeah. dragged in as well. And then again, <coughs> there's nothing quite as grisly as an arrest where there isn't solid evidence. Mm. You, um, you can imagine where a, a, a policeman is at his happiest when there's a smoking gun. When there isn't a clear-cut case, when there's no dead body and fingerprints all over yeah. it, they're going to kind of use every slight thing to try and get an edge. So they got the idea that we were going to pick this stuff up, and I, I knew we had to at least do that. Um, and we needed to find a good place to do it. The hospital had um, one major advantage, well, a few really, Apart from having uh, three or four entrances and exits, it was in a radio dead zone. Um, the police at the time were using uh, a VHF band, and you, the, the hospital was in a sort of well, and the amount of equipment, and um, uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed when you're in a hospital, you can't get a good phone signal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's in part that. due to... Um, I mean, they used to block them all together, but they, they don't do that anymore because they need them. But um, they're bad anyway, and in this location, they were terrible. So um, we went to see the uh, the Thai courier. Police turn up. We get rid of them. Um, I went to um, my favorite radio supplier shop and got some new transmitters so that Michael and I could talk to each other cut on frequencies just between the regular ones so they they wouldn't um, necessarily be able to lock onto them um, and they would work within a, a small area um, and also planted two cars uh, nearby in the uh, in in that zone and got myself um, there were some other streets that were quite useful in that area um, some that were um, kind of dead ends. You know, they had those posts in the road to block them off from yeah. through traffic, uh, that, that, uh, a stand-up pole that locks. <clears throat> so everything was quite good for that. But remember, we had that this guy would not be able to help us. You know, he'd barely accept that he was under surveillance. So um, we went to the hospital in advance. He came, all the police are with him. I met him in the lobby. Michael's cruising around uh, in his car uh, at the time, um, awaiting for my signal. Mm. I went to Hassan. I said, Hassan, look, 
there's a lot of police around today, but we're going ahead. You've got the thing with you? Yeah, here. No, hold on to it for a minute. Let's, uh, yeah. let's not get anybody, you know, getting overexcited just at this yeah. moment. Look at the, um, the, the flower shop over there. I've been here before. Normally, it's a young girl who works this place and her mother, I think. But who's there today? Some big guy. Yeah, big indeed. And uh, <laughs> the way he's Make cutting up obvious. those flowers, I think they're going to be a bit too short for any vase I've seen. Mm. It's, he's not interested in sales. And then I pointed out, you know, a couple of other people in there. So he accepted that. Um, so we had to be quick because they were having radio trouble. But by the time they realized, if they'd realized this is not working at all, they'd probably just say, well, everybody descend and, and try and get what you can. Um, took us out to the uh, the emergency entrances where the ambulances pull in. Michael came in that way, nearly skittled a couple of people, and ended up banging on the back of his car. Um, he had some um, big American uh, town car with a hotted up engine. Um, I took a sand to there, grabbed the cutlery boxes, threw them into Michael's window. He went into reverse, took off that way. Uh, the police started to um, put some trucks in front of the exit to try and block uh, him getting out, but he was a pretty good driver and could drive backwards um, under yeah. control. Uh, went out and spun around, and I took a sand not through any of the exits but to the to the back fences so the film was a bit different um yeah. it had um uh, clelia uh, distracting them with um yeah with a, a fake baby a, a fake baby in the pram <laughs> yeah. but um even though we'd spent the night before looking at a lot of distractions yeah. um we knew only too well that the chances of um police letting somebody go to save somebody else, even if it was a baby, mm. were pretty small. Not only that, saving baby only takes a less than five seconds. You either yeah. catch the pram or you don't. Um, that doesn't give you as much lead time as you need. Um, when it comes the <clears throat> there's really, there could be a, a worthwhile crook's handbook on what to do with troublesome policemen as they, they follow mm. Um, there was a heavy Bonnie and Clyde element to the movie. Is that how we played out in real life? Um, there, there was because I, I knew I was being followed um, and bugged. There was a kind of a relationship there. Um, once I, I was just getting annoyed because I was having to take lots of zigzag stuff to get rid of the people following me, um, and I. I led them into a, a, a blind alley and stopped and then went back to the um, the car that was doing the surveillance. And I said, look, this is my agenda for today. That's where I'm going. You, know. uh, you can be happy with that or, or not. Now, um, you can go and do whatever you like. Now, I know that if you go back to your bosses and say, we just had this conversation, they're not going to like it and call you all sorts of names. So you probably yeah. won't. You'll go back yeah. at the end of the day and say, oh, we followed him here, there. And this will have never happened. But really, if you slow me down too much today, I'll, you'll be in the position where you'll have to do that because the other team members will know. I, I didn't even 
except that um, I was under surveillance for uh, a while until, because uh, once we first uh, realized we could listen in on uh, the police frequencies, um, it was like a, a treasure chest of information was coming forward. Mm. We, uh, I mean, even to this day, um, 168 megacycles, 0.250, that's the frequency the uh, undercovers used to use. Uh, oh, okay. Their own communications. Was that in the 70s? Or 70s? Uh, yes, up until um, the 90s when they switched to um, yeah. a kind of uh, spread spectrum uh, digital transmission, which uh, I started to find um, uh, bugs in uh, my office and, and flats mm -hmm. that didn't come up on the scanners, and I, I couldn't understand why. You know, what I, what I do... Um, um, good for you Francis if you ever come under MI5 for being suspicious mm -hmm. for being an activist <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you'll know if somebody's put a bug if you um, um, we don't need a Polaroid anymore there was an instant camera format but um, just when you're leaving your office take a snapshot mm -hmm. when you come back to your office take another snapshot compare the uh, two yeah. um, I did that and discovered that um, a, for no reason at all, a very heavy cabinet had been moved three inches. Mm. And I went and looked at the marks in the carpet, and sure enough, it was. So I turned my radio up to disguise any noise, and then um, <clears throat> had to get a, um, a jack from the car to lift this thing. It was so heavy. Mm. And sure enough, they'd put a transmitter in there. And for the technically minded, it was a little... Um, aluminium box mm. um, but this was showing that the transition had begun from old-fashioned technology to much cleverer things it was uh, I felt like I was diffusing a bomb getting into it because mm. it had a big fat welcoming Allen key screw in the middle yeah. saying come on turn me <laughs> you can open me up here you don't know yeah. what's going to happen once you turn it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all it was missing was suspenders and lipstick on this thing mm. that was trying to be so alluring. <laughs> Come and get me. But yeah. I was suspicious, and I, I uh, used an angle grinder to shear down one end of it. And sure enough, where that Allen key had been put in was just a sideways bolt. If I'd turned it, it would have ground the inside of it to powder so that I'd never find out what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but it, it still wasn't um, a lot of help. This kind of uh, um, very high-frequency stuff travels uh, not very far, but um, very well through a lot of objects. It's very hard to pinpoint where they are. Uh, <clears throat> you, <clears throat> I would think if, uh, if somebody had that kind of uh, <clears throat> problem, they were thought some... They were being shadowed by a private eye for having an affair with the boss's wife. <laughs> yeah. That's as clean um, as I can make this setup. Um, yeah. uh, one this... way you could, I, <clears throat> I'd sometimes find out if somebody was following me by doing what they hate, which is on foot. People drive mm. around, and of course it's so easy, that their um, high tech now is nothing better than a stripped-down mobile phone mm. with a speaker taken up, and everything else stuffed in where the airbag goes behind your steering wheel. Um, 
<clears throat> it uh, takes its power off the car supply, so it goes con constantly. And, and they've now got the GPS uh, saying exactly where you are and can even listen in on the call when they feel like Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. I think I think modern technology makes that pretty much more um, simpler than um, it would have it been during your time. Yeah, you won't see too many scuff marks on a policeman's shoes anymore. There's not like mm. they're around. Them. Yeah, so yeah, they got drones now walk. to do a lot of. Mm. So if you do take them for that walk, you can mm. um, go into some place that you know very well. Let's just say you know Knightsbridge, all the entrances and ex exits to Harrods. <clears throat> The situation they'll be in is they've got to abandon their cars. Don't like that anyway. They've got to go out on foot. Don't like that. <clears throat> they've got to be in communications in places which have got lots of dead zones. Don't like that. So they're likely to, you'll strike them getting too close to you. Now, um, what you do is get an envelope and uh, put anything in it. But go to the, the dumpster uh, around the back of the big store or whatever you're, you're dragging them around. Mm. The one you're suspicious about, let him or her catch up. Uh, when you go to the dumpster, look around as though you're checking to make things clear. Fold the thing up and you put it. But when you, you slide it in like it's a dead drop or something, you make a note of exactly how it went in on mm. what angle. So you line it up. <clears throat> now, a following policeman, even if he didn't do it off his own bat, would um, say, look, um, looks like he's leaving a message for somebody. They'd all say, go and at least read it and put it back. Yeah. He'll never think until it's too late to put it back exactly how he found it. Yeah. So you'd walk them around the various floors of the place and then go back uh, an hour later, and if it's back there, but on the wrong angle, then you've got mm. your answer. Um, yeah. This old-fashioned stuff, and a kind of old-school counter-surveillance things, they... And they're still very prevalent, aren't they?